Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, good morning, Maranatha. It is so good to be back in the land of the living, even if it is over YouTube. A special greeting to any of you who may be joining us from your deer stand this morning. <laughs> good luck to all of you. And I want to thank you for your prayers for myself and my family uh, during my COVID diagnosis. I know that COVID hits everybody differently, uh, but for me it was a bad flu. I had the fever and the chills you know, that everybody has. I had those for a couple of days, and then the fatigues and the body aches, they lasted a little bit longer. And I did lose my senses of taste and smell, uh, but thankfully that has uh, come back now already, and I can taste my food again, so that's uh, really, really good. And uh, Liz and the kids, they've, both, or they've all been healthy uh, during this time as well. They haven't gotten sick, and so, again, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your calls and your texts during this time as well. We do appreciate it. And this morning we are going to be resuming our study on the Ten Commandments. We pushed pause last week to discuss some of the things in regards to the election and the election process and the, the confusion and the unrest that has resulted uh, from that. Uh, but remember, no matter, uh, no matter who is in the Oval Office, no matter which parties control the House and the Senate, uh, the Lord is still on his throne. He causes nations to rise. He causes them to fall. And keep in mind, brother and sister, that your citizenship is in heaven. Your true and lasting citizenship is in heaven. Now, this world and the nations and the kingdoms herein, they are, they are just temporary. They will come to an end. But you have a home, an eternal home in heaven awaiting you. The sixth commandment deals with the Lord's protection of marriage and uh, specifically outlaws the impropriety of adultery. And uh, this is always a fun one to cover with the seventh grade confirmation class. <laughs> uh, usually we have to start off by defining the word adultery. Uh, because admittedly, it's a word that we don't use often. Uh, we, we talk about it using its synonyms, uh, but not the actual word itself. Uh, we talk about uh, adultery in terms of having an affair or cheating on your significant other. And when I put it that way, in confirmation class, the lights start going on in the student's head, and they, they all usually agree, oh yeah, that's bad, we shouldn't do that, should we? <laughs> uh, but then we usually digress into a recap of the latest who dated who, and who broke up with who, and who said what about her, and who cheated on him, and so those sorts of things, and somehow, if we're lucky, we might actually get to talk about the Sixth Commandment that day. Uh, but despite the near-universal support among my 7th grade confirmation classes uh, that, that cheating on somebody is bad, the 6th commandment is the commandment that's under the most attack today. 
Um, and it's the, most, it's the commandment that most people would disagree with. Not, not on the surface. Not too many people would, would openly encourage others to have an affair. But the institution that the Sixth Commandment is designed to protect is under attack. The Sixth Commandment is the Lord's protection of marriage. And this morning we'll have two scripture readings. We'll read the Sixth Commandment itself, which is just five words in most of our English translations. And we're also going to read from Genesis chapter 2, where we have the account of the creation and the institution, the, the ordination, if you will, of marriage. And even though you're at home and the text will be on the screen there, I'd encourage you to find your Bibles and to follow along with me. I'll be reading first from Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, the sixth commandment, reading in Jesus' name, Deuteronomy 5:18. You shall not commit adultery. And then from Genesis chapter 2, reading the, uh, the account of the creation of, of, of woman and the institution of marriage. Again, Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this morning and for the ability to gather, even uh, if it is digitally and virtually. Father, we thank you for each one of the homes where your people have gathered together uh, around the TV, around the Word of God, and we get to study your Word today. Lord, and we do pray that you would be with us uh, where two or three are gathered in your name. You are there in our midst, and we hold to that even yet this morning. We ask that you be with us as we look at marriage and the prohibitions and the promotions of the Sixth Commandment. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As we seek to understand what the Sixth Commandment is and what it promotes and what it prohibits, we first need to take a step back and define what marriage is. Uh, what is marriage? And, and this is the question that has been and continues to be asked and debated today. But before we can define what marriage is, we need to take another step back and ask a more fundamental question. Who gets to decide what marriage is? Who makes that definition? And there are generally two different philosophies, two different worldviews when it comes to answering that crucial question. 
First, if, if marriage has been created, if marriage has been instituted, if marriage has been ordained by mankind, then mankind can define and redefine what marriage is and who marriage involves. Let me say that again. If marriage is a product of human invention, then men and women can define and redefine what marriage is and who it involves. And this is the popular current view of marriage. It's believed that marriage was invented by people, therefore people can define it. But if marriage is something that is defined by people, then the definition of marriage can and does change from culture to culture, from era to era. era. And we've witnessed this firsthand changing in definitions in the United States uh, with the legalization and the cultural acceptance of same-sex marriages and relationships. This movement picked up steam in the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s and began to gain cultural acceptance in the 80s and 90s as uh, demonstrated by the now famous line from Seinfeld, right? Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. But then even in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, same-sex couples have, have the rights to marry. Uh, and that's protected, by they say, by the U.S. Constitution. That ruling required all 50 states to perform and recognize the marriages of same-sex couples on the same terms and conditions of the marriages of opposite-sex couples with all the accompanying rights and benefits and responsibilities. That's the current cultural opinion today in the United States. But even today, other cultures have different views of marriage. In, in some cultures, polygamy, having multiple partners within marriage, is accepted as normal. And in fact, polygamy is legal and promoted in 58 different countries across the world. And in other cultures, childhood marriage is common. Girls as young as 12 and often younger are taken as brides and forced to marry older men, sometimes much older, men in their 80s. And if marriage has been created by mankind, who is to say that any of these things, homosexuality, polygamy, 12-year-old brides, who is to say that any of those things are wrong, morally wrong? Who are you to judge? Love is love, as the popular yard signs say, right? Live and let live. However, as Christians, we have an objective moral standard that we hold ourselves to, and that is the word of God. We, hold our, we get our definition there. And I believe that scriptures describe marriage as being instituted, being created, being ordained by God. Therefore, God alone gets to define marriage. And he did so in the Garden of Eden. And I've already read the account taken from Genesis chapter 2 this morning, so I won't take time to reread that. But we read that because a, a proper understanding of Genesis chapter 2 gives us a proper understanding of marriage. Genesis chapter 2 gives the, the account of, of man's creation on day 6. After the Lord God formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground, he said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Everything else that the Lord God had created, he proclaimed as good. The only thing in all of creation that was not good was that Adam was alone in the garden. 
And so the Lord said, I will make a helper fit for him. And then the Lord does this curious thing and brings all of the animals before the man to have him name them. And I think the Lord did this not because all the animals needed names. That was a a secondary benefit of it all. But I believe that the Lord did that so that Adam could see that every animal came in a set of two, a male and a female. Adam would have realized that he was alone in this world. There was no helper in all of creation that was exactly like him. And so, as we're told, God causes a deep sleep to come upon him and he takes a rib from his side and then he uses that rib as a base and forms a helper fit for Adam that was like him. And that leads Adam, the man, to exclaim in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, At last, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's as if he is saying, finally, after all of this searching, the Lord has provided somebody that is like me. And then we have this verse. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse, which we'll return to and study in a bit, this verse describes the creation, the institution, the ordaining of marriage by the Lord. He gives the formula for marriage and provides the definition of marriage. And keep in mind, too, that marriage was ordained and established long before the Lord gave the law at Mount Sinai. A biblical definition of marriage comes even before God called Abraham. And marriage even predates mankind's fall into sin. Marriage has been God's decree from day one. Oh, from day six, actually, but I think you get my drift, right? The Lord created marriage, and therefore he gets to define it. So what is that definition? What is marriage? Look at Genesis 2.24 again. Here we have the definition of and the formula for marriage. According to the scriptures, marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the participants in the Lord's formula for marriage. A man and his wife. That's it. All that comprises of marriage are one man and one woman. And this is the definition that the Lord God has presented us from the beginning. And there are three aspects involved in a marriage, a lifelong union that are given in that verse, Genesis 3, 24, leaving, cleaving, and weaving. A man shall leave his father and his mother. And this means that the man and the woman were to leave their parents' home and the protection and the security and the provision that came along with that. And they were to become a new family unit, no longer fully dependent upon mom and dad. They were to start a family of their own, raising children who in time would become full-fledged adults so that would continue on this cycle. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife. Hold fast is the second aspect of marriage. And to make it all rhyme, English theologians have have used the word cleave to describe this concept of of holding fast. And the word cleave is, uh, admittedly, it's, it's a strange, it's an unusual word. It has two different definitions, not that that's unusual in and of itself. Most 
words in the English language have more than one definition. But what's really weird about the word cleave is that one definition of the word is the complete opposite of the other definition. Uh, Cleave can mean to cut, to split, to sever. Think of a butcher using a meat cleaver, right, to cut up the meat into steaks and to roasts and to whatnot, right? We're familiar with that definition. But the second definition is the exact opposite of the first. Cleave can also mean to hold fast to, to stick to, to adhere to. And that's the aspect of the Hebrew word dabak that's used in, in describing a husband and a wife holding fast, adhering to one another. And the vows that are recited at weddings often capture uh, the bride and the groom's promise to cleave, to, to hold fast, to adhere to one another. Right? You, you're familiar with these words. Uh, the bride and the groom will repeat, uh, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, right? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish according to God's holy word. I promise to be faithful to you, unto you until death separates us. Something along those lines, right? When a husband and his wife repeat those vows, they are agreeing to hold fast, to cleave, to adhere to one another in the storms and the trials of life. And then there's a third aspect of marriage as described in Genesis 2, 24. Weaving, cleaving, and then, or leaving, cleaving, and then weaving, and the two shall become one flesh. The picture is of two separate distinct yarns that have been inseparably woven together. And these two people becoming one flesh. This is the definition of marriage, a lifelong union of one man and one woman And this definition was reinforced by Jesus. Earlier this morning, we read from Matthew chapter 19. And in that section of Scripture, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And they're trying to trick him by getting him to stumble in his words and therefore to break God's law. They ask Jesus a question about divorce. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In Jesus' day, this was a hotly debated question among the Pharisees. There were two different schools of thought from two different rabbis. Uh, Both of these teachers died shortly before Jesus began his ministry. Rabbi Hillel said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason, uh, even if she burnt her husband's dinner. But then Rabbi Shammai had a very different interpretation of divorce. Shammai said that a man is not to release his wife unless he found something indecent in her. Shammai, on the one hand, was very, very strict. Hillel was utterly lax when it came to divorce. And the Pharisees wanted to know Jesus' take on this debate that was dividing their ranks. But instead of answering their question right away, Jesus first reinforces what marriage is. He returns to the Garden of Eden before the rabbis were around to debate this question before the laws were given, before mankind had fallen into sin and before sin ruined relationships. Jesus returns to Genesis chapter 2 and he says these words. He said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. (laughs) Have you not read? (laughs) 
<laughs> I love how he begins that. I love that question. Of course, they had read it. They're, they're Pharisees. They're, they're experts in the law. But Jesus had to remind them of the simple truth of what marriage is. One man and one woman who have been united together in a lifelong union joined by God. And so the definition of marriage we have is rooted in creation and has been reinforced by Jesus. And when it comes to marriage, uh, the question that our culture is asking isn't necessarily about divorce. The question our culture is asking is, what about homosexuality and same-sex attraction? Is homosexuality okay? Isn't love, love? And you know what? We're not the first generations of, of Christians to wrestle with this question. In fact, in the Greco-Roman culture that Christianity was born into, that culture had been steeped in, in the acceptance of homosexuality. And probably the, the primary example of this is the church in Corinth. The city of Corinth was sort of like a, an ancient Las Vegas, but even more promiscuous. And the Christians in that city weren't immune to the lures of the world. The Corinthian church was, was rife with sexual immorality of all kinds. Uh, homosexuality was tolerated. And uh, somebody in the Corinthian church was even married to his own mother, or at least his stepmother. Um, yeah, they had some issues. And Paul wrote a couple of letters, First uh, and Second Corinthians, to address these issues. He had this to say in First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. He said, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that you cannot be a follower of Christ, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God if you are living in open sin and rebellion against your creator. You cannot be doing these things, supporting these things, rejoicing in these things, and expect to get a free pass. Homosexuality, Paul says, is a sin. Homosexuality was forbidden in the Old Testament and also prohibited under the New Covenant. And just like all sins, it separates us from the Lord. But in the next verse, Paul gives some very good news. He's just listed all of these sins. And then he tells the Corinthians of the change that has happened in their lives because of their encounter with Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord, of our God. That is what you were, past tense. You were living lives of sexual immorality, worshiping idols, living in adultery and homosexuality. You were thieving, greedy drunkards who revile and steal. That's what you were, past tense. But then Jesus found you. He washed you in his blood. He sanctified you. He has justified you, declared you not guilty of all of your sin. And believer, all of your sin has been nailed to his cross, and he has borne them for you. 
He died in your place and on your behalf, cleansing you of your sin, justifying you, sanctifying you. In Christ Jesus, there is mercy, there is grace, there is forgiveness for all sins. And for many, homosexuality and same-sex attraction is a struggle. And we need to be loving towards those who are struggling with these sins. Love often looks like taking time to listen to somebody, hearing them out. But love does not always mean giving some, somebody everything that they want. Love does not mean that you give into every demand. Uh, anybody who has had children can relate to that, right? Uh, very recently, my daughter has accused me of, of not loving her because I've prohibited her from jumping off of the tables. <laughs> In reality, it is the opposite. Serena, I love you. Therefore, I do not want you to jump off the tables because you might hurt yourself or somebody else. Love listens, but love also in humility and grace points out where somebody has gone wrong. And I've touched on this, this issue um, briefly this morning, and I've purposely oversimplified a very complex issue, basically because there's no way we could give full attention to this subject in, in a short sermon. And so if I've left out an argument or not given a full explanation of something, I'm, I'm sorry. I'd point you to a couple of, of very good resources for continuing this conversation. There are a couple of books uh, that are by no means the final authority on this discussion, but they're very helpful. They're at the bottom of your bulletin outline there, or uh, I think I'll have some pictures on the screen here. They're resources that I found helpful. Uh, I think there are also links to them in the Amazon or yeah, to Amazon in the video description below. One of them is a book called Love Into Light by Peter Hubbard. And the other one is uh, by Christopher Yuan, who is a Moody professor and who is actually a gay man who is struggling in that area. And so it's his uh, struggle with that. The book is called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Both of those are wonderful resources that you can check out at your leisure. And of course, there are other ones as well. But we do need to return to the sixth commandment. I, I purposely spent a lot of time answering the questions of what is marriage, who gets to define marriage, to lay the groundwork for the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And as we study the Ten Commandments in our confirmation class, we look at two important questions that help us unlock each commandment. What is prohibited by this commandment and then what is promoted by this commandment? So first, what is prohibited by the Sixth Commandment? A very narrow application of the Sixth Commandment is the obvious one. Don't cheat on your spouse. Don't have an affair. Don't have sex with somebody who is not your spouse. All throughout the ancient Near East, adultery was known as the great sin. Even cultures like Egypt and, and the Ugarites uh, that served a pantheon of gods knew that you were not supposed to steal your neighbor's spouse. They called it the great sin in their writings. The classic example from Scripture of what not to do is uh, David and Bathsheba, right? Don't sleep with one of your wife, your, your military commander's wife and then have him killed to cover it up only so you can marry the widow. In the Sixth Commandment, the Lord says, don't do that. Do not cheat on your spouse or your neighbor's spouse. Why? Why is God so protective of marriages? 
Because marriages break down and then society breaks down too when there is no trust between spouses. One biblical commentator put it this way. He said, Marriage is foundational to the creation order and to human society. Husbands and wives can hardly function fully as one flesh if they do not trust each other. Sexual relations are the virtual seal of a marriage covenant, and adultery betrays the emotional and the, the emotional psycho, psychological intimacy that uh, specially connects men and women within marriage. It's a handful to say, but he's saying that c- uh, committing adultery, having an affair, cheating on your spouse destroys the intimacy be- between a husband and a wife, and it destroys all trust that's built up within that relationship. That's why the Lord commanded his people to avoid this great sin of adultery and to be faithful to their spouse. By giving the sixth commandment, the Lord is protecting your marriage. But maybe you're not married. Does the sixth commandment apply to you? Absolutely, it does. There's a a wider application at play here, too. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, captures this truth. The Sixth Commandment isn't only prohibiting the physical act of adultery, but the Sixth Commandment also prohibits us from, <clears throat> excuse me, from lusting after somebody who is not our spouse. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus, as he so often did in his preaching and teaching, goes directly to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is our own sinful hearts. Just as hatred towards your neighbor is akin to murder, lusting after your neighbor's spouse is akin to adultery. Simply keeping the external, narrow application of the sixth commandment while ignoring the deeper heart issues is a dangerous game to play, Jesus says. But there's also a broader application to the sixth commandment. Not only would the sixth commandment keep us from adultery and lust, but as Paul explained to the Corinthians, it should teach us to flee from any and all forms of sexual immorality. Very simply, he told the church in Corinth to Flee sexual immorality in chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality, all forms of it, adultery, lust, homosexuality, flee from it. We'd probably add sexting and pornography and a whole host of other immoral actions to that list. Flee from sexual immorality. Why? You were bought with a price, he says, and that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So then what is promoted by the sixth commandment? We've heard a lot of do nots, don't do this, don't do that. But what is the sixth commandment actually encouraging us to do? In his small catechism, Martin Luther explains the sixth commandment this way. He says, This means that we should fear and love God so that we lead a chaste and pure life in word and deed, and that husband and wife love and respect each other. In each of the Ten Commandments, Luther says that it should cause us to turn to to the Lord in fear and in love. That's the first thing, the the primary motivation behind every one of the Lord's commandments. He 
He wants to use them to draw us unto himself in love and in fear. And not a cowering in the corner fear, but a fear, uh, an awe, a, a reverence, a respect. And Luther goes on to say that this commandment should cause us to lead a pure and a chaste life in word and deed. This means that we adhere to the Lord's standards for marriage and sexuality. We adhere to these things not just in our external dealings, but also in our hearts as well. Yes, we keep the externals, but we make sure that our inward thought life is honoring to the Lord God as well. We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. And finally, Luther says that within the marriage relationship, husbands and wives are to love and respect one another. And this is really a summary of the instructions that Paul gave us in Ephesians chapter 5 that he gave to husbands and wives. We read those verses earlier in our service this morning. Loving and respecting each other. And really, it all boils down to loving your neighbor as yourself, doesn't it? Especially if that neighbor is your spouse. And that's really what each one of these Ten Commandments distills down to, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Show each other love, grace, mercy that you would want them to show you. And show it to them when they do not deserve it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And finally, and we'll we'll close with this, we need to remember that there is grace and forgiveness in Christ Jesus for all who repent of of this and all sins. And maybe you've been struggling with the sixth commandment. Maybe not the outward struggle of adultery, but you've been rebelling in, in some way against the Lord and his definition of marriage. Maybe you've given into the cultural zeitgeist of the day and approved of, of our society's definitions of love and marriage. Maybe you've been struggling with lust or pornography. Maybe you haven't loved or respected your spouse as you should. If that's you, know that there is grace and mercy and forgiveness for all sins freely available in Jesus Christ for all those who would repent. Call out to the Lord. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse you of all of your sins. And he promises he he will. He promises to forgive us when we ask him, when we seek that forgiveness. And maybe you think that you've gone too far in your sin and your rebellion for God to forgive you. Let me remind you that no sin is so serious that it will make God stop loving you. He is always pursuing you, always ready to forgive And I'll leave you with the truth that Paul reminded the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for today and again for the chance to study your word. We thank you for your protection of marriage. We thank you for creating marriage and for the joys that it is, Father God. And we thank you for ultimately sending your son to die for us, that we might have forgiveness of our sins. Lord, And we do pray that uh, we would, as believers, hold fast to your word, even in a culture that tells us not to. Lord, but may we hold fast to your word, loving our neighbor, uh, even those who are struggling in homosexuality and same-sex attraction. Let us love them as you would love them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.